Vulnerability is also the ability to say that happened to me and it hurt and I was angry and there are still times where I'm angry, but that's not the totality of my experience. I'm willing to remain open and learn something better because you are not the center of my life. Mm -hmm. Something else is. Welcome to the newest episode of the In All Things podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. My name is Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, we are talking with Dante Stewart about his new book, Shoutin' in the Fire, a book about being black and Christian in America. This conversation was at times electric, and we hope you enjoy it. As always, if you find our content helpful, please take a moment to share the episode or leave us a review. Thanks again for tuning in. One of the things I found myself realizing in recent years is my work is words, writing, teaching, and preaching. These are three distinct vocations, but they all employ words to open up the world for others. Writers seek to say something authentic and true, to speak what we feel, not what we ought to say. Teachers hope to meet students where they are, leading them along step by step with words plus presence. Preachers long to say something worthy of God that speaks to God's people at this moment in history. But even as I lean into these verbal vocations in recent months, I've often found myself without words. I'm thinking primarily of a pattern of violence perpetrated against black image bearers in contemporary times and throughout our country's history. The murder of George Floyd in the summer of 2020 was a watershed moment, compounding upon countless others from Emmett Till to Breonna Taylor, each name representing an irreplaceable image of God. When the world is burning, who can write? Who can find words sufficient to the moment? And even if I could find them, would they matter? Isn't part of the problem too many words? Sometimes I sit in front of an empty page and try to put something down. I think of words as the small boats that carry me through the waves of each week. But these boats are usually too small to survive the flood that fills my social media feeds. And so I found incredible solace and fellowship with others who work with words. I'm especially thankful for the lived and written testimony of my black brothers and sisters who bear witness to a faith that has somehow survived white supremacy, wielded by professing Christians. Our podcast guest for this episode is Dante Stewart. I was drawn to Dante's book in part because of glowing early reviews, but also because in the opening chapters, Dante tells the story of how he felt like he was required to leave his blackness behind, to be welcomed in white, reformed, evangelical spaces. As a person who works with words, writing, teaching, and preaching, in similar spaces, I knew I needed to hear his testimony. There are a lot of gems in this conversation. As Dante discusses the craft of writing, the complexities of being black and Christian in America, and the vulnerable faith that it has produced. I think the main thing I learned from the conversation was how much more I have to learn. In the course of our conversation, Dante cited no less than 30 other authors, 
many of whom I had not read, a body of contemporary black literature with which I was largely unfamiliar. I've already started two of the books he mentioned, and it took some time to pull together a list of the authors and books that he cites. That list is in the show notes for those who would like to read further. But when the world is burning, what can we do? We can begin by putting our defensiveness to death. We can hear the testimony of vulnerable others. We can seek to be present in ways that do not require our words. We can repent and make reparation. And we can ask the Spirit to teach us to pray with groans too deep for words. I hope you enjoy our conversation with Dante Stewart about his book, Shouting in the Fire. I'm joined now by two guests. The first is my co-host for this episode, Howard Scopp, who is professor of English here at Dorton University. Howard has also written a review for our online journal of a new book by our featured guest, Dante Stewart. Dante is a speaker and writer whose work in areas of race, religion, politics has been featured on lots and lots of outlets. I could just read some of them, CNN, Washington Post, Christianity Today. Uh, he has a BA in sociology from Clemson, and he's currently studying at the Candler School of Theology at Emory University in Atlanta. He's a preacher, campus minister, and his new book out October 12th is Shouting in the Fire, published by Convergent Books. Dante, thanks so much for joining us. Ah, uh, no doubt, no doubt, no doubt, no doubt. It's so good to be with y'all. It's a great morning. Look forward to it. So I came to your book through the glowing recommendation of Kristen Cobus dumay who is a friend and also was our podcast guest a few episodes ago. And she said, if you read one book this year, make it this one. Uh, so after reading some of your story, especially about living in and then leaving white reformed evangelical spaces, I had to reach out. And man, we are so honored that you have joined us. Hey, I'm honored as well. And Kristen is that sister. She's great. Uh, Kristen is a dear friend. Uh, her book, Jews and John Wayne, is just, I mean, it's, 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 it's what a book should be. Uh, it's the best of the type of writing, the type of public witness uh, that you want in a book, the type of you know critical insight, but also, uh, I mean, she just flat out wrote that thing, like, like <laughs> you know, to be able to tell a history, but also uh, really critically give the critical analysis uh, of, of, of this moment. Yeah, yeah. So I'm happy. I'm happy Kristen was like, yo, show so much love. So, yeah. <laughs> and maybe that's the way in uh, to talk about your book. Your book is a collection of essays that tell your story about being Black and Christian in America. And the story is not written for white evangelicals, and yet white evangelicals are an unfortunate, perhaps, part of it. I'm wondering, do you see the story connected in particular ways to the story that Kristen is telling and Jesus and John Wayne, or, or how would you describe the basic story that you're telling through these essays in the book? Yeah, I think I think there is discontinuity and continuity between the story that me and Kristen is telling, particularly as it relates to both of our relationship uh, with a certain type of militant masculinity in general and a white uh, toxic mis militant masculinity in particular. Um, contextualized to the white, what I would deem white social space, uh, particularly uh, in the reform wings of evangelicalism, Southern Baptist uh, denominational realities and things like that. And so on the one level, you know, there, there will be continuity between me and Kristen's story uh, by sheer, ex sheer experience and shared experiences um, and the ways in which, you know, both of our realities were not taken seriously 
Um, and out of that uh, reality not taken seriously and the trauma to which, you know, we hold in our bodies and our minds and our psyches really shaped how we thought about our work. Um, but uh, the discontinuity is for me, number one is discontinuity in general. Uh, she's writing, you know, uh, history and in some sense, social, religious, cultural, theological history um, uh, and that type of commentary. And from a genre's perspective, uh, mine is more memoir and essay collection. And so there's discontinuity in the, the craft um, and the style of writing, but also there's discontinuity in, you know, who we're writing to. You know, my book is particularly written to Black people. It is uh, maybe in two chapters, two chapters deal with like the experience of white evangelicalism, the most two early chapters. Yeah, the discontinuity is uh, I was really writing a story that the message of my story was simple, that, you know, at the beginning of the book, we are not heroes. We are not villains. We are humans worthy of the deepest love possible. And I think, you know, that's a story that needs to be told continually is wrestling with the question, what does it mean to be black and Christian and American? And how do I wrestle with the both beautiful and terrible realities at the intersections of those identities? And how can I tell that story in a way where I'm not the hero of the story? I'm just the one who tells it. Um, and I want to tell it in a way that we Black folk feel seen, cared for, that our stories matter, uh, that our stories are worth telling, uh, and that, you know, it's, it's, it's worth holding on to and that we don't have to, you know, write to, to, to another uh, demographic in order for our stories to be meaningful. And so that's, you know, in, in some sense, there's connection to what Kristen is doing, you know, but there's also, uh, you know, disconnection in some sense. Uh, but I think we're swimming up the same stream and uh, trying to accomplish the same thing. And that is a more liberating and loving faith uh, and a more just experience for everybody. Um, it's interesting to you to talk about genre differences that's one of the interesting things to think about um, with your book. I'm wondering if you'd talk just a little bit about title, how you came to Shout in the Fire, and then also an American epistle, right? How did the book take take the shape of, when did you know it was an epistle? When did you name it that? And you talked a little bit about who the epistle is to, so you've covered that already, but talk about that title a little bit, if you would. Oh, yeah. I, and thank you for that question. Like, like I, when, when I'm talking about my joint, I hope people talk about the craft of the book. And for me, Shouting in the Fire, it's reminiscent. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's almost a nod to my Pentecostal upbringings. Mm -hmm. um, the book is hella Pentecostal. Uh, it's a very Pentecostal book, in, both in orientation and in feel. So the particular ways that I use language in the book is reminiscent of a sort of like Pentecostal experience of being caught up in the spirit. Um, there, are, there are moments where there are elongated sentences that's, that's reminiscent of Black preaching traditions um, and things like that. But also, you know, shouting in the fire, you know, for me was also theological. As many people know the story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and, uh, and Abednego of, of them dancing in the fire, of, in the furnace. And I write about that within the book and weave that narrative within it. So there's also a theological uh, bent to me choosing shouting in the fire um, uh, or whatnot. But also, you know, on the real, if I'm being honest, it just sounded good. I ain't gonna <laughs> lie. Like, like, it just sounded good. Like, when I, when I told everybody about shouting in the fire, that was just it. Like when I when, when it came off my tongue, it was it was it. Like like so much of my work right now is is, is centered on at the intersection of black text, uh, theory and theology. So I deal a lot of time with black literature. 
um, and particularly the work of Baldwin, James Baldwin and Tony K. Bambara doing work uh, with Tony Morrison and, and, and just poetry work with like Amir Baraka and things like that. So just traditions of black, black literature and even today with contemporary literature. Shouting in the Fire was also a nod to a tradition, a larger black tradition that I come from, both you know, in classic black lit, but also in contemporary black literature. Um, when I'm thinking about like Disha Filyaw and and, Disha, and thinking about Kiese Lehman and Maurice Ruffin and Jasmine Ward and Robert Jones and Jason Reynolds uh, or whatnot and Darnell Moore and his incredible book, No Ashes in the Fire. Uh, and I'm thinking about these people and even Sarah Broom um, and just the ways in which they thought about their literature and the ways they approach their literature and ways they approach you know, the craft of writing and, and just a nod to these larger traditions that we are a part of. I, I felt like Shouting in the Fire was a part of that as well. But then an American epistle really kind of grew up out of uh, Kiese, particularly out of Kiese Lehman, uh, Kiese Lehman's book, Heavy, an American Memoir, uh, which is, and that's Big Bruh. That book is, there are two books that shaped my book more than anything. Um, it was Kiese's book, Heavy, uh, well, three books in, in particular. So Heavy by Kiese Lehman, Breathe by Monty Perry, and uh, Men We Reap by Jasmine Ward. And so when I thought about like Shouting in the Fire and American Epistle, I was reading Kiese's memoir and just, you know, restructuring and deconstructing this idea of what, what is memoir? And what is memoir in the context of, of America? And how do you write an American memoir that's particularly centered around a Black story? So what ways does Black autobiography function you know, within a larger genre of literature? And how do we kind of take back that story and make it ours and center that story? So for me, an American epistle was also a nod to Baldwin and, 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 and my theology, because I was like, you know, on the real, I just haven't seen a memoir that really wasn't with like being Black and Christian and American, you know, outside of Austin Channing Brown's incredible, incredible book, I'm Still Here, you know, and that was another one that was just like, you know, fire, just amazing, amazing book. When I think about like an American epistle, I wanted something that was particularly Christian, but that was also hella Black. And, and, and a nod and noticeable uh, of, of tradition that I came from. So yeah, yeah, that probably, yeah, that probably was kind of why, why I did that. But also, you know, it just felt good literarily. You know, when it's on the, when it's on the shelves, when people see shot in the fire of the American epistle, it's like, ooh, ooh, the way it hits you, you know, that thing just hits you. And then when you get to that first line, boom, that's it. You're giving us reading lists here, which I have a lot of books I wrote down as I was reading your your book. But to hear you say these are the three books, that's really helpful uh, for me to have homework. Uh, after oh, that. no doubt. And on the real, no lie, like there was another one. There's a lot of books that I read that just completely shaped how I thought about the joint. There's there's another one uh, by Robert Jones, The Prophets. When I say that thing, I Robert's book came out when I was doing my revisions. And I was anticipating Robert's book coming out. So like I was reading that one, but then also I was reading N.K. Jameson's The City We Became. Uh, so two, two incredible fiction books. And I was like, yo, when I read them joints, I was like, yo, I like there was areas, you know, in my book that I was like, you know, I, I needed to like land the plane or I needed to open this up a little bit more. I needed to like put a little bit more feeling on this and a little bit more texture or like say a broom in a yellow house, like there needed to be like the feeling of rooms. You need to feel that. You need to see that. You need to feel the, the, where we're rooted in, where we're grounded in. And so like, man, 
Robert and, and NK, like the world building in their books, like it, it completely, like it sh both shattered and shaped the way I thought about, you know, the world building and uh, that I tried to accomplish in my book. So Robert Jones and NK Jameson, read them, get them like today. Yeah, I love hearing you talk about your your craft of writing and especially the word I keep on getting is this idea of capacious, that you're opening doors and, and, and the space is getting larger. And you've already said uh, moving towards a more love, loving and liberating faith. And so that leads into my next question, which is just about how your sense of the good news of Jesus, which you talk about, the you, you use the word gospel uh, all the time. And that word has different um, valences in different spaces. And so I'd just be interested to hear you narrate how, how has your sense of good news, what's good news changed, mm. uh, been clarified, complicated, changed mm. uh, in the different parts of your journey, whether that was growing up. Uh, mm -hmm. in the Black Pentecostal church, and then as you mm -hmm. describe it, running from Blackness and then returning mm -hmm. home uh, to the spaces mm -hmm. you are now? Great question. Great question. So like on a real, like the biggest ways my my understanding in some sense has, has broadened and expanded of what we mean by good news and gospel, uh, it's, it's really a nod to uh, James Cone and M. Sean Copeland. Um, I, I, I have to give love to them, but also I have to show love to uh, Elizabeth Alexander and Terion Williamson. So, you know, when I think about black liberation theology, I think about womanist theology, uh, but then also thinking about black feminist uh, theory and things like that uh, and poetry that Elizabeth Alexander is working with. You know, I started to kind of, you know, reshape like what I understood to be good news for black people. The question, what, what, what type of story do we need given the particularities of our historical, social, and cultural experience given and uh, happening in America, is, is our good news just simply being able to call back doctrine and principles, or do we need something that takes into account the body? Do we need something that takes into account story and metaphors and the ways in which story, body, and metaphor help us think about the experience of meaning when it comes to our faith? When I was in reform spaces and evangelical spaces, as many people know, you know, the, the gospel, you know, is like the, the crux of everything. It's like, you know, and in some sense for the Christian, you know, for the, for the Christian, the gospel in some sense, that's, that's, that's true in some sense. You know, that this story, you know, is, the, is, is central to how we understand our place within the world, how we make sense of our experience, how we understand the type of dreams that we imagine for ourselves and for our collective human uh, reality and in the world we exist in. But then too often for in those spaces, the gospel was more a weapon that was used against other people to control, to control and to hold on to power rather than to invite everybody into experience of love and liberation. And so the emphasis of the gospel found its emphasis in Paul. And in some sense, it read the rest of the biblical story and history through that particular lens. Now, everybody, every single person, Every community has a standpoint, as the feminists would speak of, as many Black feminists speak of, that many people have a standpoint, have a starting point to which they intersect with the Bible and, in, and are invited into this biblical story. And we need to take into account where we start that story at. And for me, as I started to read Cone and others, I started to see, I started to embrace, you know, a story of the gospel that would take into account 
the ways in which our realities are historized. How, how, what, what type of news do we need given the history? And so I started doing particular readings, particularly of in, in, in my book when I did that reading of the man in Mark uh, chapter five, you know, and, 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 and the type of, you know, biblical interpretation that I was trying to do in that book, taking seriously black stories as much a theological starting point as anywhere else. This is the interesting thing about the Bible. When we come to the Bible, something as simple as naming, like names, like the Bible is an anthology collecting stories and names. And we would say that these names are where the divine is revealed at. And so when we read Song of Songs or when we read Samuel or when we read Genesis or when we read these epistles to these people, we would say that like, yo, like these are the words of God, that these, this is divine revelation bound in human experiences. And so for me, I wanted to open up a world, a black world that Kevin Kwashi speaks of. I wanted to say what type of revelation of the good news that God reveals, what type of divine revelation, what type of sacred story. What type of sacred text can be revealed once I take seriously our lives, the way we handle, the way we eat around dinner tables, the way we play cards, the way we write literature, the way that we understand our own type of worlds and experiences and what we imagine for ourselves, as Toni Morrison would speak of. What does the gospel mean when we take that paradigm to ponder the actual and imagine the possible? That's what Jesus did in Luke chapter four. The spirit of the Lord has come upon me to preach good news, to set liberty to the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's simply doing what Toni Morrison is doing. Jesus coming and pondering the actual experiences of human people and uh, uh, imagining what's possible when our lives intersect with the divine story. And so for me, I started thinking about the gospel in broader terms as trying to tell a better story than many of the stories that we were offered. And that was a tough process and even tough process to this day. It's an ongoing process of faith and wrestling and learning and unlearning and relearning and being humble and realizing that I'm only one person telling this story. And therefore, I need many voices. I need many epistemologies. I need many people reading the Bible and doing their biblical interpretation so that we can bring together this, this multitude of voices, as in Acts, you know, where the where the divine story was bound on many languages and tongues, where people were declaring the good news and the good works of God. That proclamation is always rooted in the story of a people. And I wanted to stake my claim in the story of Black people to say that we have something to offer good news, not just simply for us, but the world that we live in. You mentioned the body in, in there, and I'd, I'd like to talk about that for a minute. Tanahasi Coates in Between the World and Me says to his son, instructs his son Samari, keep your eyes on the body, right? Mm. Um, and in some ways, you ask your readers to do the same thing and shout in the fire. Yeah. Um, and I think that's interesting within context of church, right? Some people would say that church is not about the body. Um, mm. And in fact, you know, Coates kind of wrestles with that as a, you know, someone who finds himself distant from, from Christian faith. Um, he wrestles with that in the book, but in your experience, church seems very much about the body, right? Mm -hmm. um, so can you talk about how your experience in black church growing up affirmed the body? Um, mm. And perhaps how does, you know, dividing body and soul, how does soul talk? Is it, how is it, is it complicit connected to the violence we see against black bodies in the U.S.? Yeah, incredible, incredible question. Incredible question. And I mean, Tanahasi's book was one, you know, that I read 
a lot. And you could tell, you could, you could feel the kind of wrestling that Tanahasi was wrestling with and the ways, you know, I wanted to wrestle as well. So not Tanahasi. Um, and so as I think about, you know, your question, particularly, you know, in the body, most of my ideas about the body came from M. Sean Copeland and how she speaks of the body um, in her brilliant, brilliant, brilliant book, uh, Enfleshing Freedom, Body, Race, and Being. And so one of the things M. Sean Copeland speaks of is, 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 is where the body is like a very critical point of theology. In some sense, we are embodied experiences is really in some sense, first and foremost, as we think about how we interpret the world. Oftentimes our interpretation is rooted in our lived experiences. You know, think about, so think about cultural studies and cultural theory. Cultures inform individual practices and ideologies and how we interpret what vision and values we have for the world and things like that. But also, you know, cultures also have inheritances. And so a lot of times when we think about the ways in which many Christian communities have thought about the body. Uh, uh, Sean Copeland does a great job in, a, in, a, in an essay on Beloved and, and thinking about Toni Morrison and the body in the flesh. She says that in, in the realm of religion, the body has always been a contested site. It is all, particularly uh, the black body. It has been a means of production. Uh, it has been a mode of power. It has been a way to control and manipulate. Uh, it has been devalued and, and subverted. And so M. Sean Copeland does a great job helping us think through the ways in which, you know, Jesus had an embodied experience. So he understood what, what it meant to be marked within a society, what identity meant and perform what it means to perform this identity. So when we think about the body, we also have to think about performance and what, what type of ways, how can we understand those practices and those experiences and give language to it. So when I think about Sean Copeland and even what I was doing in my book, I tried to give language to what I was seeing and hearing and feeling and touching as a, as a young Black man who is Christian, but who is Black first, who is Christian, but who is also American, who is American, but who is also Christian and Black. And so trying to figure out how can I speak about those realities and, and as kind of, how you say, keeping your eyes on the body, because I believe, as Sean Copeland writes, you know, that the body is a place of divine revelation, that the body contains in it. We say that we call it the Imago Dei. We just don't call it the body. But that is literally what it is, that the Imago Dei is bound to bodies. And so if that is true, then we must ask the hard questions, thinking about, you know, how, how are our bodies either caught up within these systems and matrices of oppression? And how do our bodies, what type of body movements and performances and what type of embodiments, what type of lived experiences work against those things? And so when I think about the Black church, I want to first and foremost say, that we have to be mindful of the way we think about the black church, that not everybody, everybody as, as one word, but also everybody as, 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 this, as two words, not everybody had an experience that is liberating, especially as I think about uh, black LGBTQ uh, or, or whatnot and thinking about that and those who are poor and those who are women. Those experiences and those particular narratives in black, in black church spaces are not always liberating. They are oftentimes caught up in the same oppression that many of us, particularly, you know, that we that we black men talk about in, in white evangelical spaces, 
Many, many of them are caught up in the same type of reality. They are existing in a social and religious space that sees them as second class, that exploits their creativity and their beauty, that denies their power, their power and their autonomy, that oftentimes disrespects them and expects them to be okay with a given system of injustice, justified not simply by this kind of idea of theology, but in particular ways of thinking about theology, root and quote unquote theology and these practices within the quote unquote created order. That this is natural. When in actuality, these what we many of these things that we believe to be natural you know, are inherited. And, and we got to wrestle through those inheritance. So I want to first and foremost say that in the black, the, the black church, we, we got to be careful to speak about the black church, not to speak about the black church and the black religious experience in triumphal ways, because that's not true of everybody within the black church. And we need to do better about that. But also I want to speak of the black church as a place also of freedom. So it's walking in the tension, just like in my narrative, where I speak in that chapter on womb, where oftentimes that in religious communities, we are taught we are taught what bodies are meant to be loved and what bodies are meant to be hated. And so if I don't have a way of understanding embodied experiences and embodied practices and identifying myself and naming where I where my social location is, then it's going to be very hard. First and foremost, as if we think of it on a theological level, it's going to be very hard to touch others the way that Jesus touched them. Jesus, as Willie Jennings says, theologian Willie Jennings says, he's, he, was, he touched others and was touched by them. You know, I love that. And I think about my own story. I was trying to touch and be touched by those who, you know, I was around. And when I told that story, you know, that, that touching is not always the best process. Sometimes it's beautiful and glorious, you know, but sometimes it's traumatic and messy. And if, as ta says, we don't keep our eyes on the body, we're going to miss the complexity of this situation and the tension and what ways we need to reimagine what it means to be together as humans, as Christians, and as neighbors. But we also will miss the beauty that is bound to our bodies. And that beauty that I was trying to bring out was a particular Black beauty, a feeling of Blackness that was more almost, I was trying to do some type of like science fiction. Like I was trying to, I was trying to, 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 to I was trying to do some type of Afrofuturistic dreaming and doing some type of theology to, to, to imagine futures. Whereas Sean Crowley beautifully speaks of otherwise worlds. And so if I can't think about the body, then I can't think about how these bodies, whether they be in church, whether they be in the academy, whether they be in the street, whether they be in the homes, wherever we find ourselves and the ways in which theology and religious communities have devalued bodies, has disrespected bodies, has disrespected people. If I can't do that, then I cannot imagine possibilities beyond violence, beyond messiness, beyond terror, beyond whatever. I need to keep, as Tanahasi says, an eye on the body. And, you know, for me, as you read, you know, I tried to do that in a way that this was distinctively, you know, Black and Christian. And hopefully, you know, hopefully people resonate with what I was trying to do there. And it wasn't, you know, and the thing is, that's the dope part about it. Like, this ain't a finished product. Like, it was just the beginning and the joining of a conversation that already, that already came before me. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, the way, like the way Kiese was talking about the body in, 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 in his book, or the way Disha talked about, you know, the secret lives. I love that thing. Or Sadia Hartman uh, in, in Wayward Lives of Beautiful Experiments. The way she talked about waywardness. I was just trying to come along and shout in the fire and try and do that same type of work that they were doing, that Baldwin was doing, that Morrison was doing, that Bombardier was doing, that Gwendolyn Brook was doing, that nigga Giovanni was doing, and all these just incredible black writers or whatnot have been doing for a long time. One of the things that your focus on the body and just in general, the, the focus of the other writers that you're citing is that it produces this vulnerable faith um, you know, you mentioned Willie James Jennings, who writes this critique of the way we do theological education that's focused on mastery and possession and control, which mm. is sort of the opposite of the vulnerability that a more embodied theology gives us. And so I just want to read a couple of lines from your book. There are just lines here that sing. And uh, I mean, yeah, this, this sounds like a sermon. Their faith was not a destination. It was a discipline. That's that's describing the faith of your of your mother and father and how it's marked by struggle. And, and yet it's a a discipline, not a destination. And another time you're writing about talking to a middle school student and you tell them that's faith, us black dudes trying to learn to be honest, find meaning in the story of Jesus and live in this country. Mm. Um, I think it just, that captures some of the simplicity um, and beauty, the, the beauty and simplicity of the vulnerable faith that's at the heart mm. of this book. So I wonder if you could say more about vulnerability and, mm. um, and where that comes from. Yo, no lie. What that came from, bro, was um, there was one particular essay that was written by Elizabeth Alexander, written in 2020, uh, in the summer 2020, was was uh, entitled "The Trayvon Generation," and it was it was just this beautiful narration of trying to wrestle with both the sacredness and the vulnerability of the space between our black lives with one another. It, it is beyond the white logic. So this ain't no like, you know, teach white people about, you know, racism, how terrible racism is on your body. Uh, and Mike Perry writes about that beautifully in the Atlantic. Racism is terrible. Blackness is not. So read that. Uh, it's not about like, you know, oh, man, blackness is just so terrible, so hard, so ugly. Well, no, white supremacy is. This terror that we're forced to live with is. But when we're talking about black lives in the sacred space between us, it has to be a joint that's characterized. This relationship, how we tell the story, has to be characterized by vulnerability. And she she had this she had this line when she was talking about these stories and these narratives and these names, whether it was Breonna Taylor or Philando Castile or Ed Gardner, Sandra Bland, Ahmaud Arbery. She was talking about the ways in which, like, how anti-Black violence within a country forces us into a certain type of vulnerability. So on the one hand, there is a vulnerability, there is a system, a reality that we live in that forces us into vulnerability. It forces us to, that, that our lives are oftentimes, as the Bible speak of, vapors. That, that oftentimes we can die before our time. That, that we can die just simply because somebody thought that we were reaching for something or we were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or somebody can say, you are not meant to be here, as I write about. And that puts us and forces us into a situation of vulnerability. But then also vulnerability is the way we relate to one another as Black folk and the sacredness and the holiness of our lives. And I'm thinking about the ways in which Elizabeth Alexander spoke about her relationship between her sons. 
And the way she talked about the way they danced, what they sounded like, what they looked like, what, what was bound to their bodies and their stories. And this vulnerability was saying, we have no control or no protection over this situation. So I want to be as vulnerable as possible when I relate to you in tenderness. So vulnerability for me, as I thought about faith, was about that tenderness, about that sacredness and treating our stories as sacred. So like when I was talking to that middle school student and he's talking about Juice World and talking about the vulnerability of being honest about this situation that we're in. It's a messed up situation. It's confusing. Like in what world, in what world? Of course it's this world, but it's that statement. In what world should I as a parent have to tell my child who's three years old, who's laughing because he sees dog on um, Chase and Paw Patrol and say, we got to call the police up, policeman. Call, call the police, call the policeman because Chase is police. I'm like, uh, already I have to think about that. Like, Chase is Chase. He's a little police officer. You know, he's a little, a little doggy. But it's already the reflex of having to mentally prepare and think about that. Well, but then also the vulnerability to say, this is not the totality of our experience. And that's what I think was so beautiful about Elizabeth Alexander's essay and the way she ended that essay, which was so beautiful, she ended it with a line from June Jordan's poem, I am black alive and looking back at you. And I think about that, like, like that's for me is faith. I am black alive and looking back at you. I'm, I'm, I'm walking in the fullness of my humanity. I'm trying to embrace the humanity of other people. I'm trying to take something from them of their story that can help my own life to teach me about love and justice and, 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 and community and power and agency and glory. And this thing that Jesus speaks of, the kingdom of God that is already at hand and work in the world. Wherever Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, he didn't point us to some outside of ourselves. He said, look at something you are already familiar with. So vulnerability and faith is me being black alive, like Jim Jordan says, looking back at others, trying to pay attention to the sacredness in between our lives, the holiness between our lives, and the love that I know is possible between all of us, particularly the love of blackness, the embrace of it the beauty of it, the complexity, the ugliness of it, the full humanity of ourselves. And for me, at least for me, that's where I found, you know, the experience of faith and deep faith that was able to carry me beyond the rage and gave me something other than just simply being constantly reminded mm. of what other people did to me. And that's vulnerability as well. Vulnerability is also the ability to say that happened to me and it hurt and I was angry and there are still times where I'm angry, but that's not the totality of my experience. I'm willing to remain open and learn something better because you are not the center of my life. Mm -hmm. Something else is. I'm dying to ask about voice. I'm dying to hear you talk uh, probably for an hour on voice because <laughs> uh, I think it's so interesting. Um, where to start? So, I mean, the voice in this, right, that's what 
stopped me cold in a good way, right? I, I began reading it and it's rhythmic, um, but it's got these deep channels to it, right? And I'm wondering about finding your voice. That's a notorious hurdle for writers. Um, some of this is tied up with, right, extracting yourself from white evangelicalism, white spaces, uh, and, and finding that voice again. Then there's the question of, right, there's a preaching voice. Uh, um, and you've said that there's some similarities there. And yet, I would guess it's not exactly the same. And then there's that, right, the voice of the ancestors, trying to write with the voice of the ancestors. Mm-hmm. You talk about the process of, of finding the voice for this book and when you hit it and knew, and maybe you knew right away, but talk about, yeah, finding that voice and, and what that was like sorting through things. And once you had it, like what it meant, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Man, these are some great questions. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. These are incredible questions. I think I think I'm still finding my voice in a sense. Like because I'm always challenging myself to become a better writer. So I know that's like cliche about like, you know, I'm always trying to find my voice. But like it's I feel like it's a serious process, like, because there's always so much more to learn about yourself. There's so much more to learn in the world. You know, and as you write and develop a writing practice, you realize that some things work and some things don't. And when it does work, you got to figure out how to maximize how that works without repeating it too much to where other where people get overbear by it. So thinking about sentence structure in my book, some sentences are short, punchy. Some sentences are like balding, like long as crap. Like as far as like they 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 separate like there's this line they separate with the word and and not a comma that was intentional and that's reminiscent of Audre Lorde's uh, Zombie uh, where she she has this line in Zombie where she was like I remember what it was like to be young and black and gay and lonely I thought about that like 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 that that right there like those that that was that was particular those identities and those experiences are together, they're bound together, but they're separate. And so like, as a writing voice, I was like, okay, some, some sentences are short and punchy. Some are by themselves to make you sit with that. Some of them are like, and boom, and boom, and boom, and boom, and stacking on one another. And so I thought, you know, for me, like finding my voice was, I think number one, reading good writing. That's, that's first and foremost. So Stephen King, in his book on writing, he's like, you know, if you want to become a good writer, you got to read a lot of books and you got to write a lot. <laughs> you know, so so I believe that. You know, I believe that 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 finding my voice was about reading a lot of good good books, and I am particularly reading a lot of good black books because I am first and foremost a black Southern Christian writer. So like just like Zora Neale Hurston. Like when I think about that, I am Southern. I'm a Southern writer. That's who I am. I'm a black Southern Christian writer. And, and, and rural, that, right? Rural. Yeah, and rural. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, so like you feel like rural South Carolina and Clemson. And I'm talking about like the, the geography uh, or whatnot and thing. And you feeling that joint. So like, yes, that too, uh, or whatnot. And you feeling like like black Southern life, like there are particular language and metaphors and, and, and symbols and images that I use that's particularized to black Southern life. And so like finding my voice was about reading great books and, and, and writing a lot and challenging myself as a writer, you know, being in conversation with other writers 
So like that, as you see, you know, my house is full of books. I'm full of books and not just full of books. I read my books. Like I can tell you about these books and I can point out like things in these books that I resonated with that. Like I can remember, like when I think about Viet Thanh Nguyen's book right here, uh, Nothing Ever Dies. It shaped Viet Thanh. And I, dropped, I named y'all Viet in this book, you know, when he's writing about memory, that that war happens two places, happens on the battlefield and in memory. And when I was talking about my grandma and how we remember and that battle of remembering, you know, trying to call back Viet Thanh Nguyen's beautiful writing on that. So like reading and writing and writing a lot, but also trying to embrace these voices and weave them into my own, you know, thinking, but also finding my own voice more so. This is about leaving. When you leave a space, you have to let something die. You have to be okay with leaving. You have to say, that place brought me meaning in one season, but it will not bring me meaning in another. Mm-hmm. And finding my voice was being okay with who I was. I don't, I don't mind talking about what I believe. I don't mind talking about who I have become because I change. You know, as Octavia Butler in that beautiful joint parable of the soul, God has changed, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, in some sense. You know, we're always growing, you know, and if we think about our Christian life, God has changed. When Octavia says that, what she's saying is sanctification. Somebody else just used a different term. We're always changing. To be in relationship with God is to be in a continual process of change, to be in a continual process of growing, of wrestling. And so I had to be okay with my change. Mm -hmm. And that's when I was okay with my voice because I didn't have anything to prove anymore. I didn't have to prove that I was better than I was because I wasn't. At, point, at one point in time, I wanted to prove like, yo, I'm doing better than I am. I'm good. No, I ain't got to prove that I'm better than I am. No, I'm angry right now. And that's okay. There's going to be a moment when I get better. And when I get better, I'm going to go through therapy to get better. I'm going to write. I'm going to talk to people. I'm going to read. I'm going to try to do as best I can to come as healthy and as whole as I can, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's how I find my voice. When I'm okay with Dante, I'm okay with who that person has become. But I'm always trying to get better, trying to grow. And when I'm okay with that, it's okay if I write a bad essay. It's okay if I write a bad chapter. You can't get to the good unless you go through the bad. You got you to go through it. And it's too often when, when many writers and people are just trying to find a voice, whether they're preachers or writers or speakers, we just got to get to a place of maturity where we're okay saying, this is who I'm not. This is who I am, and this is how I'm going to show up in the world uh, as my full self. Our guest has been Dante Stewart, the author of a new book, Shouting in the Fire, out October 12th. Dante, thanks so much for being with us today. No doubt, no doubt. It's been incredible. Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast from the Andreas Center at Dort University. Original music is provided by The Ruralist, and thanks are in order to Ruth Clark, Shannon Vischer, Vaughn Donahue, and the production team at the Andreas Center. You can find us online at inallthings.org or follow us on Twitter under the name at in underscore all underscore things. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content beneficial, please help us out by leaving a review and sharing with others. Thanks for tuning in.